1: Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HouseToForts.com.
2: Welcome to the podcast, I'm Kristen and I'm Caroline and today is part one of a two-parter that we are doing on abortion and particularly abortion in the United States and I think that uh, our, our talk about abortion should just go ahead and be prefaced with uh, the, the clear statement that we aren't pro-abortion, I don't think anyone is pro-abortion. But we are pro-choice. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. We are in favor of letting women decide whether to have children or not have children.
2: And honestly, Caroline, the more I learn about the history of abortion and particularly its criminalization and subsequent legalization in the United States, the more pro-choice I have become, the more deeply committed I am as a person And have become to championing that right. Yeah, I agree. And it seems like the deeper we went into
3: abortion history, the more it became clear to me that while abortion has always happened throughout our history and will always continue to happen in one form or another, and while it has always, to some degree, been a taboo, uh, it's interesting to look at how the fight against women being able to have abortion seems so tied to seemingly ancillary issues. Um, abortion seems to be caught up in the argument between, uh, for instance, the professionalization of medicine and the professionalization of obstetrics versus those evil, sneaky, low-class midwives. Um, It also seems to be caught up in conversations about population growth and control, about uh, wealth versus poverty, uh, high-class versus low-class Americans, race. I mean, Abortion itself almost seems like just another bullet point in all of these discussions that have been going on
2: since the dawn of our country's history. And it's so often portrayed, especially in our political landscape, as a black and white issue where you're either pro-choice or anti-choice, Where, <laughs> whereas, of course, of course, as is often the case, when you really dig into what you're talking about, there are so many different layers to it. and. Even though we've talked about reproductive rights on the podcast before, a long time ago, uh, Molly and I did a podcast on the mechanics of abortion. And we're not going to get into like how abortions work in terms of surgically how they work today. Um, and we've also talked about Planned Parenthood before. But after this year and we're recording this, listeners, um, at the end of 2015, we could not not talk about abortion considering the reproductive rights climate um, in the U.S. right now, and the Planned Parenthood hearings with Cecile Richards before Congress, mm-hmm. uh, the Planned Parenthood uh, shooting in Colorado Springs, and on and on and on, and so many bills being presented at Congresses, uh, both within the states and also nationally, to restrict women's right to choose.
3: Yeah, and so what Kristen and I wanted to do is really provide a context for the abortion discussion that's going on today in this country. Uh, we didn't just want to tick down the list of what happened in abortion history year to year, decade to decade, century to century. We really hope to illustrate the fact that, like I said, abortion is something that's always happened and that women will always find a way to achieve. And so we wanted to shed a little light on the politics, the culture that goes on around it, and what influences
2: whether people are for it or against it. Can we start off now with a little bit of Gloria Steinem? Oh, of course. That might seem like a bit of a side note. Um, But in reading up on abortion history for this episode, it made me think of Gloria Steinem's new memoir, My Life on the Road, and how she dedicated it to the British doctor who performed an abortion for her and hearing her talk about that experience um, in interviews that she was having, you know, in, in months past while she was on that book tour just made me think of how recent a lot of this history is. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is a woman that you and I have had the esteemed honor of, of meeting and, you know, she lived in a time as so many of our mothers or grandmothers did when You would have to, if she did, find a doctor who would do this thing he wasn't supposed to do. And in the dedication to her memoir, Gloria Steinem relays what this Dr. Sharp uh, made her promise in order before he agreed to perform her abortion. He said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you who knew the law was unjust would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life, and this book is for you. Gosh, isn't that, that just always made me just
3: cry. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's an excellent snapshot of the attitude that many pro-choice women and men have, which is you should be able to live the life that you want to live and to choose to live live it the way that you want. And so with that,
2: should we give a little historical context? Of course. That's that's the whole point of this. (laughs) This is a context show. So let's leap way back in time, way, way, way before Gloria Steinem, uh, to ancient history where we often begin. Because here's the thing. For most of history, there have been permissible circumstances for early term abortions,
3: Right. The line in the sand, so to speak, was something called the quickening, which is basically when a woman would feel the fetus move for the first time. This typically happened in the about fourth month of pregnancy. And everybody pretty much assumed like there's no pregnancy before that. Um It's more a lack of a period, a lack of a menses. Um And so when the quickening happened, that's when people got sort of iffy about abortion happening. Now, in ancient Greece and Rome, the only time that a pre-quickening abortion would be a big deal would be if the dad actually felt entitled to a child. But even Aristotle advised abortion in cases when couples have children in excess Partly because of this whole idea that fetuses were not fully formed until 40 days after conception for boys and 80 days for girls. It takes a little longer for girls to to yeah, get baked well, in the oven. We've got to get our makeup on, you know, and that takes forever. And then, like, you've got to wait for the straightening iron to heat up and do your hair. So, I mean, it's a miracle we can even get out of the womb.
2: Yeah. I mean, it takes me 40 days every morning to get ready. <laughs> so it feels like it for me. I don't know how I'm here. Um, but in fact, that. 40-day mark um, was something that for a long time the Catholic Church used as its um, sort of uh, line in the sand as well, not condemning abortion before that period under the belief that the soul hadn't yet entered the fetus, although that policy would certainly change. And we should emphasize, though, that abortion was not morally ideal, but it certainly wasn't as unconscionable, as many people consider it, Today, as that early developing fetus was really just considered a part of the mother. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of this early focus on abortion up into the 19th century, as we'll get to uh, focused all on the health of the mother and what was up to her, what she felt in terms of the quickening. Oh my god, something something being left up to a woman, a medical
3: decision being left up to a woman. And that's sort of the point of this whole discussion of early abortion, which is that with this idea of the quickening and waiting until the mother says, "Oh, like I felt it kick, I've got a baby in me now. Hooray, we're going to be parents." Um it was it was really up to the mother's judgment. Um and then only then
2: would uh, other people accept that she had a pregnancy. And in the cases that Women discovered that they were pregnant, that their menses had stopped. Uh, there were all sorts of, especially herbal abortifacients, that women might seek out to induce miscarriages. And Kathleen London at Yale describes all sorts of these folk remedies, such as in Germany, things like marjoram, thyme, parsley and lavender in tea form were used. And that just sounds like a pleasant tea, to be (laughs) honest. And also in Germany and in France, they used the root of worm
3: fern, which was very pleasantly nicknamed prostitute root. And that actually, though, stretched back to ancient Greece. So that's something that had been in continual use since then.
2: And then uh, in more modern times, if you if your garden wasn't growing so well, you could always reach for some turpentine or castor oil or maybe quinine water in which a rusty nail had been soaked. Mm, cocktails. Or speaking of cocktails, Caroline, yes. gin. Oh, one, one of your faves. Gin with some iron fillings. Well
3: speaking of cocktails, I mean, yeah, quinine and gin, there you go. gin, Just tonic.
1: Have a gin
2: and Tonic is out of what women were doing. <laughs> oh Lord.
3: Now, Germany and France weren't the only places that had folk remedies. Of course, women in America used these remedies as well. Things like savon, ergot, rue, tansy, or penny royal tea, they also used rosemary and lavender. Slave women would turn to cotton root. But P. S, y'all, penny royal tea wasn't really a pleasant way to induce a miscarriage. You might experience possibly fatal symptoms, including tingling fingers, nausea, dizziness, and strange burning sensations.
2: Yeah, I mean, because essentially what these women were trying to do was poison their body into inducing a miscarriage. So these herbal abortifacients weren't necessarily The safest or healthiest routes, Um, but it wasn't just about going out and and plucking some herbs and making some tea and muddling some things. Uh, Well-to-do ladies and their gents might also procure so-called female pills, which were meant to induce miscarriages as well. And there was a euphemism actually um, that is found in a lot of women's like letters and diaries uh, for taking. These quote unquote female pills, which they called taking the trade. Yeah. And in a lot of sources that we were reading
3: about this, they talk about how if a euphemism exists for something that that typically reveals both an openness and acceptance about the fact that this is happening, that women are controlling their own fertility, but also the need for secrecy. So, like, this is happening, and we're writing letters to each other or writing in our diaries about it, but we can't just say, I'm getting rid of my pregnancy. We've got to call it something.
2: Well, they might just call it going horseback riding. And, of course, there are also so-called, like, external abortifacients with things like heavy lifting, climbing trees, jumping, uh, also douching with lie. This is when we get into the far more dangerous types of uh, self-induced... Abortion or of course knitting needles and coat hangers, um, being inserted into the vagina to try to pierce the uterus.
3: That just sounds horrific. All of that sounds horrific. Um, and not making it any easier though is the rise of morality around abortion and how it affected laws in the UK and the
2: US. Yeah. What, what I was genuinely surprised to learn Was just how chill we were legally in the United States and under like English common law regarding pre quickening abortions. Like we said, while it wasn't like morally solid gold, it was not the end of the world either. So, pre 1800s in the US, there were no laws against pre quickening abortions. Those kinds of, um, sort of homemaking colonial guides that women would have would include commonly recipes for those herbal abortifacients.
3: Well, usually under the euphemism of bringing on the menses.
2: So, Oh, your menses is stopped. Here's what to take to bring it on. Restore that menses. Um, and Protestants and Catholics were mostly fine with it too. Although Christianity considered it taboo, unless in the case of preserving the mother's health. And a lot of our sources noted that even through the 19th century, many women didn't consider abortion a sin, probably helped by things like the euphemisms of, you know, I'm just bringing back my menses or taking the trade. It's no big deal. And speaking
3: of English common law, though, in 1803, the English decreed that a post-quickening abortion
2: was a crime
3: punishable by death. So that escalated quickly. Yeah,
2: but it wasn't so much about preserving the developing life of that fetus, as a lot of our abortion debates, at least in the United States, are focused on today, those first statutes in the UK and also in the United States outlawing abortion were far more concerned with preserving mother's lives. I mean, essentially, these were poison control methods. Yeah. And what's confusing
3: there for me, though, is so they're worried about you poisoning yourself. And if you try to poison yourself,
1: they'll put you to death. Okay, yeah, that is kind of a mixed message. (laughs) This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh
0: pre-measured ingredients and mouthwatering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun,
1: easy, and affordable. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
0: Yes, and right now that is more important than ever. Especially when we're all apart. So, recently I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were nice. six feet apart, and everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun.
1: Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers in traditional or now not.
0: And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chynet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup.
3: But as we move into the middle of the 19th century, particularly in the 1840s, abortion starts to be a profitable business. You see more and more advertisements by, uh, quote unquote, drug companies, not like we would think of them today, obviously, but people creating those female pills. We see midwives and we see people like a Madame Restelle who advertised her birth control and abortion services.
2: Yeah. So Madame Rostel was the pseudonym of abortionist Ann Lohman, who was later dubbed the wickedest woman of New York. And she essentially set up an abortion service where she would sell her infamous monthly pills that you could um, order by mail. Or if you would go in and see her, she would give you these pills that would possibly induce a miscarriage. But then she would also rely on clients coming back because they wouldn't work. And she would administer abortions for $20 if you were poor or $100 if you were rich. And she was so successful that she opened branch offices in Boston and Philadelphia. Yes, yeah,
3: she even had traveling salespeople. Going door to door in different big cities selling her tonics. Um, and of course, you know, all of these ads, again, they were all very euphemistic uh, selling her services and selling her tonics and potions and things of that nature. And not surprisingly, she did face a lot of criticism, probably for her notoriety. She wasn't. A midwife who kept to herself in her own little cottage. I mean, this is a woman who was so successful that she was buying real estate. She had a huge property built in New York City. Uh, she would wear furs and jewels and people were just disgusted by this ostentatious show of wealth, especially because of how she earned her money. Um But the thing is, the criticisms that she faced sound pretty familiar if you're a person alive today reading the news she was accused of preying on the naive and poor of threatening the institution of marriage of helping women shirk the duties of motherhood and even encouraging prostitution and basically her response to this was like i don't understand why you people think that all of the women in your lives are just waiting for the chance to be vicious and awful like women don't sit around being like you know I'm going to get pregnant so I can go get an abortion. I just think that that sounds like a great idea. Or, you know what, I'm pregnant and all of a sudden, I'm just bored. I'm just going to go get this taken care of. She basically was like, listen, your women aren't less virtuous because they do this. And how dare you assume that any of them in such a vicious way want to go do this? She also, though, and this is sort of a topic that we will revisit in greater detail later, she asserted that doctors and politicians wanted people like her out of the way so they could make more money. Because around this time, you start seeing the professionalization of medicine, uh, medicalized abortion happening with more surgical options, more professional obstetricians performing these procedures. And so that kind of left abortion open mostly to the wealthy, whereas poorer women still relied on those potions that women like Madame Ristel sold.
2: Those uterine tonics or cathartic pills, as they were sometimes called. Um, yeah, it's fascinating to see how this is the period when this becomes a socioeconomic issue as well. And we should mention, too, that a majority of Madame Russell's clients and also a majority of women who seek abortions today are were married. These women were married with kids. Mm -hmm. Um but also during this time in the mid eighteen hundreds when uh Madame Rostel is getting herself arrested a couple of times, people are really you know, calling her wicked and all of these things, the abortion debate intensifies along with moralizing in the US. So it's in the mid nineteenth century that Massachusetts enacts the first state law making it Abortion or attempted abortion at any point in pregnancy, a criminal offense and a really comprehensive paper we found from Ohio State University also notes how there is a distinctly American shift toward abortion being reframed as a moral issue and as a sin at this time. Whereas you see. Over in Europe, the abortion debate starts to shift more toward focusing on uh, how a lot of these women are just in dire straits and they lack resources. So let's let the government step in and do something about it rather than. This moralistic tone that it takes across the pond, where women who are seeking abortions are obviously immoral, possibly prostitutes, they're irresponsible, and they are, you know, essentially making God
3: cry. And just a few decades later in the 1870s, despite the increase in moralizing, there are 200 full time abortionists in New York alone who have a pretty okay. collective safety rate of of performing these procedures or handing out these tonics and having women uh, survive. But, you know, we can't just leave the moralizing behind. This is also the time in the 1870s when we get Anthony Comstock and the Comstock laws.
2: He's the worst.
3: Yeah, he's the worst, but he doesn't. He sounds completely modern to me, Kristen. I've got to say re- reading about this guy, he sounds absolutely like somebody you'd read about in the news today. Tell me more. I will. So in 1873, Comstock, who is an anti-sex trade and pornography crusader, helped push a bill through Congress that defined contraceptives and contraception information at all, period, as obscene, saying that they promoted lust and lewdness. So a little bit of context within the context within the context the diaphragm had been invented in Europe in 1842 and the full-length rubber condom in the U.S. in 1869. So Comstock was seeing ads for birth control, for people like Madame Restell, for those tonics to bring on your menses and things like that. And he's like, ew, stop, gross, this is awful. Uh, and similarly, though, it's also worth noting that Comstock was one of the many, 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 many people who did not distinguish between birth control and abortion. So in his mind, it was just as bad to advertise your abortion services as it was
2: birth control services. And by birth control services, at this time, we're talking exclusively about those barrier methods. Right. Okay. So... Thanks to old Comstock getting all squicked out <laughs> over some advertisements, uh, he, the Comstock laws passed and it becomes illegal to send birth control through the mail or across state lines. So all those care packages with condoms that I send you every, every month, Carolina. Oh, I love it. I mean, balloon animals all day. Uh, yes. Couldn't send them. No. Although I guess it's not across state lines. So Comstock approved. <laughs> I can keep doing it. Um, Twenty four states, though, soon passed their own versions of Comstock laws with New England states instituting the toughest ones, which is interesting to me. I mean, I, I think
3: nowadays of New England being fairly blue on the political spectrum, but they were definitely cracking down on any type
2: of uh, funny business, so to speak. Maybe they're trying to make up for lost time. Uh, but by 1900, abortion had been criminalized across the U.S., except in cases to save a mother's life. Meanwhile, English law had been amended so that it could take place when, quote, done in good faith for the purpose only of preserving the life of the mother. So you already start to see, in the 1920s, Britain starting to backpedal a little bit in terms of its abortion criminalization, whereas in the United States it is just continuing to dig in its heels. This episode
0: is brought to you by BetterHelp. So we know, listeners, it's been rough for a lot of people out there, and we've been very open about our experiences with therapy and how it's been so helpful for us in the past and in the present. And because of that, we wanted to highlight a service that we think might be of help to you all, BetterHelp, which offers licensed online counselors who are trained to listen
1: Get started today at betterhelp.com slash momstuff. That's better,
0: hel pcom com slash momstuff. Talk to a therapist online
4: and get help. Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number 2 plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends.
2: But what happened during this time, Caroline? I mean, how did we go... From, you know, especially during this period in the 19th century, from pre quickening abortion being a, pretty much like a way of life. You might not talk about it openly, but you've got some euphemisms. It's just going to probably happen to the turn of the century when it's completely illegal. So the whole irony of this time period is that it's called the progressive era. That is the backdrop that we're really going to dig into to add a little bit more nuance to, to better understand why abortion became criminalized in the United States, because... You might think listening to political arguments today that it was because, oh, we we just decided that we wanted to preserve the lives of these fetuses. We needed more babies. It's all about the potential babies. Right. But no, actually, when it comes to criminalization it's sort of all about the dudes. If we look in the progressive era and, and what's going on. And Leslie J. Reagan has been an outstanding resource um, on the history of abortion in the United States. And in her paper, Linking Midwives and Abortion in the Progressive Era, she wrote, and I quote, the combined campaign to control abortion and midwifery took the form of a classic progressive era reform movement. A coalition of private interest groups, doctors, female reformers, nurses, and journalists of the native-born, white, middle class identified a problem, investigated, and documented its extent in objective reports and mobilized to promote a state-sponsored solution. So you had a bunch of people going, we know better than you.
3: Listen to us. We're going to fix your lives. And a lot of Reagan's research focuses around Chicago being an incubator for anti-midwifery and therefore anti-abortion sentiment. There were all of these fears during the progressive era. And Kristen and I have talked about this many times on the podcast before around women's sexuality versus their innocence, particularly in these urban centers where more and more young women were moving away from the farms and moving into towns to make money, to make a living, living on their own, maybe living in boarding houses with other single women. But... (laughs) <laughs> Essentially, you have this wave of urban working women making everybody a little nervous. Uh, there were all of these concerns that these women were or would be victims of male lust. But also, they were blamed for being harlots for liking it. So there was this duality of judgment on a lot of these urban women, many of whom uh, these progressive era reformers assumed were going and getting abortions like every week. Um, And so these anxieties helped give rise to the attitude of, yeah, yeah, let's take the powers and abilities away from midwives and give all of those powers and abilities to doctors. And it's interesting. It was not just male doctors who were against midwives there were a lot of female doctors who were just as likely to slam midwives during this time dr eliza root in 1893 blamed midwives for infections and inducing abortions but bt dubs she also blamed improperly trained doctors in general saying they were just as bad and this was presented at a conference at a medical gathering And the result was essentially and I'm grossly overgeneralizing, but the result was basically a lot of doctors going, oh, look over there. Midwives are evil. Like, we're fine. We're going to keep doing this. We've got tools and medical degrees like they're just low class women with
2: herbs, with herbs and this idea of quickening. Right. That was one of the big things that these uh, fancy professionalized doctors wanted to scientifically debunk was the idea of quickening, because they said that it was just an emotional experience that women would have and therefore couldn't be trusted. So that gets those pre-quickening abortions sort of off the table. So all of this was happening on the heels of the newly formed American Medical Association, which got together In 1857 and soon after all these dude doctors got together and were like, hey, let's professionalize this whole medicine thing. Oh, and by the way, let's launch an anti abortion campaign and target these midwives and homeopaths, whom they termed irregulars. And that was a term, irregulars, that even the media picked up on. They would. (laughs) They would. That lamestream media. (laughs) So you have the othering effect of these midwives and homeopaths. And from 1880 to 1920, there was this massive debate, really, all around the turn of the century over midwives, because by this point... Midwives were considered almost synonymous with abortions. And one of the big pitches that these doctors had for poo-pooing midwives was that, okay, they're performing all of this hocus pocus and all of the abortions. And you know what they're doing? They are depleting the white race. And now we get to the pivot of eugenics. Yeah, eugenics
3: emerges in the late 19th and early 20th century, first in England and then in the U.S. before being exported to Nazi Germany. And it was the idea that certain physical, mental and moral traits were genetic. So it was very important to these people, these people being everyone from the American president to presidents of universities to politicians to your average Joe on the street, Um, It was important to them to weed out bad traits like poverty, promiscuity, criminality, mental disability. And I want to go back in my time machine and have a talk about privilege, basically, with, with this whole eugenics thing and assuming that things like poverty are genetic rather than the product of generations of oppression. But anywho, I think it's interesting to me that in the time when abortion is becoming illegal across this country, and people are saying it's immoral and awful, eugenicists were pushing legislation for forced sterilization of the poor and disabled. Tens of thousands of poor women in this country were sterilized. The movement ends up peaking in the 20s and 30s, but it carries through and it's not until, you know, like after World War II that people are like, oh, that Hitler guy kind of ruined that for us. But... I find it interesting that you can be against abortion
2: but for forced sterilization of innocent women. And this goes to what's also happening at the time, this white fright that's afoot, where you have these social scientists who are stoking nationalistic and racist concerns over declining white birth rates and rising immigrant populations. I mean, even Theodore Roosevelt in 1894 said women of good stock who refused to have children, were race criminals. Yeah, there was an
3: attitude that it was a sign of moral disease if you chose to limit your family, and that we need a growing population of healthy
2: white workers, essentially. And the best way for that to happen is to make sure that women can't go to these midwives and get abortions or abortifacients and part of that had to do with how uh, doctors in the professionalization of medicine and obstetrics attempted to scientifically debunk midwifery and also establish the hospital rather than the home mm-hmm. as the place where birth and any kind of a maternal related care should take place place. Yeah, and Reagan
3: writes about this as allowing doctors to adjudicate the legality of abortions. That's a lot of words, but it essentially is talking about how doctors and state politicians start working together to make sure that women can only get abortions in hospitals, but then only in the case of life-threatening emergencies. But, like we mentioned earlier, what does this do? This essentially only leaves the wiggle room for wealthier women to be able to continue to access abortion.
2: Yeah, they would be called therapeutic abortions. And so some doctors would declare morning sickness as reason enough to have a therapeutic abortion. So now we have this, you know, abortion still existing, but something that's really only accessible for the wealthiest women. And we have so many layers going on so far. So we have some racism afoot and some eugenics going on. We have the professionalization of uh, medicine and obstetrics. We, we have women being shoved to the side basically being told that their feelings about uh, physical and emotional feelings about the quickening are total bunk. We have concern about uh, the women's movement afoot and men having to be held to a new sexual standard. And then, of course, we have religion. We got some religion in the background not helping things out either. In 1869, Pope Pius IX declared embryos human beings with a soul at the time of conception and declares that abortions lead to excommunication. And then in 1895, a papal decree condemned therapeutic abortions as well. Yeah, so no
3: abortions under any circumstances at all in the view of the Catholic Church. So it's thanks to this combination of all those factors that Christian was just mentioning that led to abortion being redefined almost completely as immoral, though it was still common. I mean, it's not like it went away. And that's something that we need to reemphasize. Like, abortion has never stopped. People will always seek abortion. And it also didn't necessarily mean that women felt yet a moral obligation to carry a pregnancy to term. Despite the fact that women, midwives, female doctors, you name it, they were all under... These basically character attacks from so many male doctors who are essentially mounting a backlash against, like Kristen said, the women's movement, against women having power of any kind, against women relying on any self-knowledge of their bodies and their pregnancies and, and being able to say what's what. And that's where we get a lot of the modern argument that the professionalization of medicine is anti-feminist. That's where a lot of that argument stems from, that women were no longer allowed a voice in their own bodies, in their
2: own healthcare. Well, and it's such a stark example, not only of the professionalization of medicine and the impact that can have on women's lives, but also the politicization of medicine as well, because as Leslie Reagan underscores, there couldn't be this like huge impact of abortion ultimately being criminalized if you didn't have alliances between doctors and the state to the point that you have judges like Chicago Judge John P. McGordy ruling in 1915 that a woman who would destroy life in that manner, a.k.a. an abortion, is not fit for decent society. So, I mean, you you just have all of these forces at work. I mean, it's it's almost the perfect, most imperfect storm in the mid to late 19th century that ended up criminalizing something that used to very much be a way of life in the days of the founding fathers. Yeah, and so by this point...
3: Not only is abortion illegal, but the women who seek them are officially breaking the law. They're immoral and they're irresponsible. And it's almost comedic if it weren't so sad that men are lacking from this conversation, not in terms of who's legislating things. Obviously, that's the dudes in this scenario. But the men who are getting these women pregnant um, But that just goes back to the whole discussion of so many women in this era who were seeking abortions were not necessarily the prostitutes that everyone was so worried about on the street corners of Chicago, but rather mothers who were already having so many children and whose bodies were becoming destroyed and who didn't have enough money to feed these children that they were uh, having. These are the women who were more likely seeking these procedures. And so as a result of making abortion illegal and of labeling women who seek them as immoral and irresponsible, you have so many women, especially poor women of color, going to deadly lengths to obtain abortions, especially if they did not have much money. And this really sets us up for our next episode, where we're going to lead you through the conversation of how essentially Women tried to help other women achieve abortions, achieve birth control, and that would then lead us to the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973.
2: And in the meantime, of course, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on abortion history? And, And especially if you live outside the United States, what do you know about your own country's abortion history? Momstuff at Howstuffworks.com is our email address you can also tweet us at Momstuff Podcast or message us on facebook and we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now
3: well i have a letter here from abby about our gilmore girls episode she says hello ladies i'm 19 and i grew up watching gilmore girls with my mom and sister we started watching at the very beginning when I was about four, and since then we've been watching and re-watching all of the episodes. At this point, I think I've seen all of them at least five times. There's something that's always been special about watching this tight-knit mom-and-daughter show with my mom and sister, and we've assigned characters to just about all of our friends. My mom is Mrs. Kim, my sister is a mix of Rory and Paris, and I'm Lane. I loved hearing you guys talk about something so near and dear to my heart that's made me laugh and cry and everything in between. Since it's been on Netflix, I've gotten the chance to watch it with friends and argue about which of Rory's boyfriends is the best. The answer is none of them, which is really amazing as well, especially when it's their first time. Funny story, too, there's a little place in the tiny town where I went to college called Luke's Joint that serves breakfast. I spent a few homesick lunches eating breakfast there, which always helped, especially since the owner was kind of grumpy like Luke Danes is. I'm really looking forward to watching the reboot with my mom and sister. We've already planned to watch it together no matter where we end up in 2017 and probably watch all of the episodes again. Thanks for an amazing show and thank you, Abby.
2: And I've got a letter here from Amy also about our Gilmore Girls episode. She writes, I watched a show since the beginning of season one and I loved it because it's very sweet, fun, and funny. I loved that Rory loved to read. Although I certainly didn't have a dean thinking my love of reading was sexy. I have some points I wanted to make based on whether or not the show is feminist, the amount of minorities represented, etc. I'm also a big fan of Gilmore Guys, and I'm listening to the latest episode as I type this. It is a feminist show, and here are some examples. First, Lorelai names Rory after herself, and Rory uses Lorelai's last name, not her father's last name. Two, lots of women run businesses. The Independence Inn, the Dragonfly Inn, and even the Town Mechanic are all women. Miss Patty is strongly independent, as is Pyrrhus. Three, Rory is more renowned for her brain than just about anything else. Yes, Bladell is attractive, but Dean likes her for her smarts and wit. That really is cool. Second, the show really does show a wide range of people and types. Maybe I'm wrong, but isn't Michelle a person of color? He was one of the main characters on the show, and they mention him being French and don't focus on his color, but I always thought of him as a person of color. Two, Lane, another major character that is way more than the Asian girl... Yes, her mother has some quirks, but if they were going for stereotypes, she would have been super brainy like Rory, very good at math, and shy and quiet and maybe good at the piano. 3. Look at the town. Suki is a larger woman, but look at her. She's not a fat chick obsessed with losing weight, being the loser who doesn't have a boyfriend. She's the one who, in my opinion, has the most solid relationship with a man in the entire series. She's cool, pretty, funny, and super talented. Miss Patty, also not thin, was super sexy. So yes, I've spent long periods of time thinking about all these things. I love the show, and I feel if they tried to shove in a bunch of types just to fill a quota, it wouldn't have read as real. So thanks, Amy, and thanks to everybody who's written in to us. stuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, with our sources so you can read more about the history of abortion, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.